You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. And today we're talking about the sermon. Yeah, we're going to get into what comprises an effective sermon, what isn't important for an effective sermon, a lot of stuff like that. So that's what we're going to do right now. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with Shane Cox, who's a pastor of Takehold Church in downtown Grand Rapids. He's a friend of both of ours. I'm especially excited about this because in our second episode, we talked to Gary Hansen, who's the pastor of an intentionally multi-generational church in the suburbs of Seattle. Last episode, we talked to Jared, who's the pastor of a small country church, mostly comprised of older people. Shane, as he said, is a pastor in a downtown urban area, and his church is mostly younger people. And so we're going to get a wide spectrum of the challenges and the struggles and the joys of pastoral ministry in all its different forms. But first, we're going to talk a little bit this week about the sermon and what makes a sermon a good one and preparing the sermon, writing the sermon. I know it's something, Jim, that you're passionate about. I'm passionate about it. I don't write uh, sermons or compose sermons as often as you do. But when I do, I know that I try to implement a lot of the things that you're thinking about in your process as you put a sermon together. Yeah, we did do a sermon together, August, right? Almost a year ago. 2015, that magical time. And that was an interesting experience uh, to prep a sermon together. I'm looking at your notebook here, and it's... I've got my notebook, and I, <laughs> I keep notes a little bit differently than you, I think. Yeah. First of all, I keep them in pen, not in pencil. <laughs> the year of the pencil. This is, this is the year. One of the things that I have found over the last several years of doing sermons, you know, 40 sermons a year or whatever, is it's much harder to figure out what not to say than it is to figure out what to say. And so that art of cutting and the art of saying no to certain aspects of the sermon is super hard, but it's very rewarding. And I think it really helps to creating a pointed and effective teaching. It's kind of like the artist who looks at the block. You've heard the metaphor. Well, if you're a pastor, you've definitely heard this metaphor. The artist who looks at the block and who's chiseling away the extra pieces to get to the essence of the, of the statue or the figurine or the piece uh, that they want to create. Yeah. And it's a painful process. Right. It is, especially I've spent, I don't know, a whole day kind of following a lead on a sermon in my prep, whether it's, you know, a specific cultural action or a reference to a previous scripture, you know, something. And if I'm in the New Testament, something in the prophets, and I spend hours and hours following this lead. And then I kind of take a step back and I'm like, okay, this is not even bringing me close to where I, where the sermon is needing to go. And really it's not helpful. And how do you know that? How do you make that call when you realize, cause I've been there too. How do you make the decision to say this rabbit, this is a rabbit trail, this nitty gritty research that I just spent two hours on actually might've been great for my own yeah. purposes, my own right. study. Not, and, it's not wasted. You still, it's not grow. wasted, yeah. but I still am not going to use it directly in what I communicate to people on Sunday. For me, it often comes back to whether or not I start with a good ending. <laughs> so in my prep and kind of my initial research and reading through the scriptures and praying and, and looking for guidance, 
I like to start with a premise that will guide my entire thing, kind of like a, a map or a key. And so then I can go on these rabbit trails, really get into it, but then take a step back and see, okay, does this have to do with where I'm going? Uh, but if I don't have that end point when I begin, things kind of can get out of hand. So it all has to feed into that final landing phase, that final application phase, sometimes in more traditional yeah. sermon writing. What does application look like for you as you come to the end of a sermon? How do you bring that home to people? Well, it depends on what the sermon is. Um, it depends on if it is a direct and clear application, you know, if I'm teaching through the epistles or something and it's just right there, or if it's something that I have to kind of um, open up a little bit more. Sometimes I'll even make a firm break in the sermon, which I know is kind of against most uh, sermon homiletic teachings is you want everything to be smooth, but sometimes they'll say, all right, this is kind of what the scripture teaches, but now let's kind of take it and bring it into our lives. And so there's almost like a firm break there where I can bring what we just did, but also I can bring in maybe some other things that we haven't got to that I didn't build up. Adding a few extra details at the end yeah. to change the perspective and right. to open people's minds. and Right. Yeah, that's great. Do you have a favorite sermon that you've ever preached? <laughs> the one that I just did because I can remember it most. I know. <laughs> I mean, seriously, all of them. All of them. When I when you preach, I know all most. I'm not the only pastor that knows this, but when you preach 40, 50 times a year, they all do kind of not blend into one another, but in many ways. I hope that no sermon is rising above any of the others because I hope what's happening is they're all kind of part of my ministry. Like they all kind of build the foundation for what I'm trying to do on a large scale. And so some of them may connect with people more or may connect with me more. But my goal is that they all just kind of meld together into a a ministry teaching that kind of goes throughout the, the career. Well, it's career. your life. And it's right. not just Sunday morning and the message that you preach. It's the whole life that becomes the ministry, becomes the sermon. Like Paul says in, in Second Corinthians, yeah. you are the letter. Right. And so the preaching is just one, one aspect of that letter. That was really uh, interesting to hear you say that because I, was, I preach rarely enough that I can remember the different ones. Yeah. Uh, and they stand out in my mind. Like usually my pastors go on vacation at Christmas time. So I'm always <laughs> stuck with some kind of Christmas sermon. So I think, well, I'm just going to preach a different version of the same Christmas sermon that I preach every year. But do you have any that you remember? Let's, let's not say your favorite or the best ones, but maybe something from more than a year ago that stands out in your mind as something that you remember. So probably the one that stands out the most. Uh, this was sometime last summer. I don't remember exactly when. Uh, but I decided to do a small series on stories from the book of Numbers. Like you do. Like you do. Because most of the times we think of Numbers as the census, which is riveting reading. Uh, but there's also a lot of good narrative in there. And so I did a short series on a few of these. And the one, obviously, that a lot of people think of in Numbers is the story of Balaam and Balak. So that's a story that Maybe people in ministry or people who've been around the church for a long time know, but I think it's a story that a lot of, you know, just people who come to church on Sunday aren't super familiar with. 
And so it's such a good story. It's so funny. It's so pointed. It's so effective. I decided, kind of like what we talked about last week, to just tell the story as a story. And so I spend a lot of time in my preparation in the scripture, getting into the details of what's going on and the location of everything and and how this whole story works out. But then when I got up uh, to preach, the first thing I said was, uh, now for the words that you never want to hear your pastor say, I don't want you to get your Bible out this morning, which is so contrary to everything we do at Celebration. The first thing I always say is, turn in your Bibles too, and we go from Scripture. But I wanted people to just listen to the story and hear the narrative as if they were hearing somebody tell the story about, you know, a funny vacation event or a movie or something like that. And so I spent the next 30, 35 minutes just telling the narrative of this story without having them go and and, and look in their scriptures. At the end, I said, I want you to go home and I want you to read this on your own and make sure I'm not lying to you, uh, which I didn't. But to me, that was just a really interesting experience in the preparation for it, but also to see how my people were engaging with that was very um, informative to me. When I saw them, like I didn't lose a single person, maybe that's not true, but I didn't lose very many people for that entire 30 to 35 minutes. They were just locked in, not to me or not to my oratory skills, but they're just locked into the biblical narrative and the biblical story. And it reminded me how important and how powerful a story can be when it's told. So to me, that was a really fun sermon. Uh, It was a sermon that I still remember the application and I still think about the application. Like I taught myself (laughs) in that sermon. I still think of that a lot. Um, But it was also just, just interesting to see the power of story at work, and that's something that I've been able to incorporate in other teachings since then. That's something that's been really consistent in in my teaching and what I try to communicate to students is the importance of story, and I, I get a lot of that uh, from Donald Miller uh, and his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, just kind of a memoir of, of how he made significant changes in his life. I was actually invited to my daughter's third grade class last week to do a presentation to this group of uh, students. Bring your daddy to work day? I was more like community speaker. Okay. And the teacher didn't actually know what I did. She thought that I was a liter- a literature teacher. She thought that I was a writer or an author. And, and I, I tried to tell her a couple of times, like, that's not really what I do. I, <laughs> I teach Bible theology, but... Yes, my daughter likes stories, and she's a reader and a writer and all of these things. So I go up, and and I'm prepared to address 30 students, and it's actually 90. It's all of the third grade class is coming in to talk. And Keynote speaker. I did this thing that Donald Miller did in in one of his presentations where uh, he's actually interviewing Phyllis Tickle, who's another author, and uh, she talks about the importance of setting in her own experience. So I had the students draw a picture of the first house they can remember living in to teach them that setting is important. And it's amazing to see 93rd graders and they, they lock in, like you were talking about with story. They lock in on, okay, this is the first house that I can remember. And I asked them afterwards, 
were you excited to draw that first house? And all the hands went up. And I said, now, if I just ask you to draw any house, that wouldn't be nearly as interesting. You wouldn't be half as excited about that. But if I ask you to draw your house, that's important to you because mm-hmm. that's the first thing that you can remember. That's where your family uh, raised you. That's where you got to know some of the most important people in your life. So you knock out some of the most important elements of story right there. You get setting and you get character and you get the conflict of the story many mm-hmm. times because our childhoods are not without pain. And uh, students right there are already at third grade at nine or 10 years old. They're already thinking in those terms of story. Mm. And so even from childhood story, and if we can, and if we can utilize that power of story right. in the sermon, then you've got a whole different avenue of communication. It's not a lecture, right? Uh, it's not a homily. It's not commentating on scripture. It's using the scripture to uh, be what it is. It's it's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Right. And when we remember that scriptures were originally transmitted orally, <laughs> that the first hearing of these these teachings and these writings and these stories was in a very similar fashion. It's not like we're trying to manipulate something in order to fit our context. In many ways, we're getting back to the essence of how God originally revealed himself to people. And it was through this oral tradition of story. But also, the pastor has to know their congregation. They have to be intimately aware of what they're going through. So like a a great example of this is my intern, Joe, who I'm sure we'll meet at some point in the future on the pastoral calling. Intern panel discussion. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, He he preached a few weeks back. The night before, he had just gone to uh, a, a a progressive dinner with like the the group that is called the Middle of the Road Gang. So these are all the people in like their forties to their sixties. Oh, all the people my age. All the people your age. Happy birthday, by the way. Thanks, Joe. The big four zero. But anyways, Joe is you know fifteen to twenty years younger than all of these people. But he went and he and his family had dinner with all of them. The next day, when he when he preached, he told me he felt his ability to communicate was naturally improved just because of those relationships that he built with his people. And so there again, you know, we can talk about sermons and the joy of of doing all of the study and the presentation and all of that, but without having a presence in the community, none of that really matters (laughs) at the end of the day. And so there again is that wide range of pastoral ministry in, in the value of all of it. I think it is a spectrum you can see on one end the the pastor who's a scholar uh, of the scriptures. Maybe they're a scholar of of the sermon itself. They're a great um, they're a great craftsman putting the sermon together week after week. Uh, they also might know their congregation really well. At the other end of the continuum, you might have a a pastor who is very uh, heart driven, very emotion driven. They connect with people very well. They're naturally attuned to people's needs, and they're and they're they communicate with such feeling, and and everyone somewhere is on that gradation between the two. Right. I would say wherever you find yourself on the continuum, that is who you are. But we all could stand to grow. Mm-hmm. So you have pastors who are scientists when it comes to their sermon, but they could stand to become artists. Yeah. 
and you have artists who maybe just show up and intuitively tell stories, yeah. but they could bring some structure and some framing to that. Yeah, I think that that's right. I'm, I'm conflicted. I've been doing, in one of my classes I've been taking, uh, been studying strength-based leadership, which mm. going into that, I thought, I don't want to read this book. It's about corporate leadership models, and those are not, that's not my cup of tea. But that really connected with me, this idea of you have these natural strengths, and so dig into those things and be the best at whatever you are. God has naturally gifted you at. And so I think to some degree in preaching, that comes across as well. If you are a good storyteller, be the best storyteller. If you are a good exegeter, be an excellent exegeter, which is a great name for a punk rock band. Maybe not. Exegeter. Uh, <laughs> hardcore band. Can't wait to talk to Shane later. And so there again is is that tension that we live in of if we do work to improve, it's not in order to bring growth to our church. It's not to bring, you know, praise to our name, as Paul would say. I was not <laughs> the best speaker. I was not all of these things. But it's worth improving if it will help your congregation become more aware of God's presence in their life, God's presence in this world. And if communication is a part of that, that's worth investing in. And it's a balancing act, as everyone knows, to to try to do this. I don't think we're trying to say that here's something more you need to add on right. to your plate or under the burden of pastoral ministry. But rather, it's, it's an awareness of the calling yeah. that says... Part of what I do, an important part of what I do, maybe the most important part of what I do is communicate the word of God to people because this for many people may be the only time they crack a Bible, that they hear scripture throughout the week. This is the one chance that someone has, that God has to speak into their lives. And therefore, I need to be in the best possible place. Absolutely. So I think that that's where giving the sermon its honor and returning it to that place in the life of the Christian where it has value, again, not for the glory of the preacher, but as you said, because it is an opportunity to bring an awareness of God into the lives of people. And that's really what we, why we do what we do. Welcome back to The Pastoral Calling. We are here with Shane Cox, who's pastor of Takehold Church in downtown Grand Rapids. Welcome, Shane. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me to this. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your church? I think you kind of have a, a unique approach maybe to ministry or maybe at least a unique demographic that you that you reach. Okay, yeah, I'll just give you like a um, short summary. I grew up Baptist, and it was very kind of strict. And so I fell away from my faith and the church and went into what the Christian culture would maybe say the world. And I felt like I was kind of like a prodigal son, right? And so around 24, I um, recommitted <laughs> my life to Christ, and um, I realized that there was a, a whole different realm of people that, you know, were perhaps 
wanting to be called out by Jesus. And so Hmm. I went through all the channels that you're supposed to, like schooling and seminary and whatnot, still felt like a fish out of water in those places. But after all of that, after being a youth pastor and and whatnot, I looked at my wife and said, what are we going to do with our life? And so we said, I don't know, but we have a crock pot and we have an apartment (laughs) We have scripture, and we know some people who don't know Jesus. So mm-hmm. we just kind of you know, invited people into our home, which then become, became a Bible study where we ate together, sang together if someone had a guitar or could sing a cappella, and we prayed with each other and looked at scripture. And So that was the, I guess, conception of what Take Hold Church was and is. And we just want to reach out to those who would not normally enter into a a building with a steeple that reaches the clouds, or maybe they've been burned by the church or a family member, or they are exploring faith and what that might look like Mm -hmm. in an agnostic or atheistic kind of philosophy or mindset. So I don't know, probably our demographic is more, you know, like 16 to 30, but we are definitely, I'm praying for silver hair and bald heads and we have people getting married and making babies so (laughs) hopefully our demographic will spread but um, a non-denominational bible believing um, evangelistic uh, or evangelical spirit-led church I guess is kind of like what it's become we're not a, a huge church we have on any given Sunday maybe 75 to 100 people. So it's small, so it's got that kind of community feel to it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of who we are and what we're doing and trying to reach outside of uh, West Michigan Christian culture and, uh, and, and foster a place of sanctuary and refuge for really anyone. But it seems to be that our niche is, you know, like the hardcore kid or the punk rock kid mm-hmm. or the whatever, you know, I hate stereotypes, right. but that's pretty much what it is. Right. Have you had any difficulty kind of keeping your focus and your intention as you've gone from a home Bible study to now? I mean, you're in a, your third location now, right? After moving from your home. This is technically our fourth. Okay. Yeah, we're we're now on Burton and Jefferson, but yeah, home to coffee shop to underneath where you lived, <laughs> and uh, now in a in a, a basement of an old church building. So as that has kind of evolved, has it been difficult to keep your your focus of we just want to provide this kind of close knit community where people feel welcome, or is that naturally grown with you guys? I think it has unintentionally grown with us. Hmm. I don't know. I I think. Um, one of the things that we don't, we're not perfect and we mess up all the time and I fail every day, but I think one of the things that we are good at, if I can say that without sounding prideful is, is really allowing people to enter into a place where they can be transparent and honest, Mm. where a lot of times, especially when I grew up, I don't know your guys' background, but um, it was like you came to church in your Sunday best. You mm-hmm. had a smile on your face. You shook hands, and it was like, "How you doing, brother?" And it was like, <laughs> "Great, praise the Lord." And, and when you prayed, you went into King James English. You just yes. slipped into Hulk Hogan English. There, <laughs> How you doing, brother? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and and yeah. I'm, I'm I'm I know that I'm probably hypocritical too sometimes, but 
a lot of time. But I guess I was trying to, we were trying to as a community say that we don't want to be that. We too want to be genuine and, and unique and transparent. And that's, it's really messy. So what does a week in the life of Pastor Shane Cox look like? You and I run into each other on occasion downtown at the coffee shop or something like that. Yeah. But what's, uh, what's your week look like? I'm definitely not so much a spend a bunch of time in a cooped up in an office type pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to take Mondays off, um, but my wife said, you're very crabby on Mondays. Uh, she called it moody Monday, manic Monday. Um, and so I was like, well, there's Sounds something. like a hashtag yeah. to happen. <laughs> there's a song for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the Bengals or yeah, something right. like that. All right. So um, I think that I was like, I stepped back and I was like, man, I, I think I need to just jump in right on Monday. So I try to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, meet any meetings with people. You know, like, hey, you're you're struggling with this or you want to talk to me about this or meeting with leaders and whatnot and any other thing that I need to do, catch up on emails and all of that. Um, I'm starting to think about what Sunday's going to look like, what the message is, looking at the text a little bit, trying to get it in my mind. Um, Thursday is when I'm like trying to just focus um, from nine to five on the sermon. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of pastors get that, but um, thankfully, I get that time to just block it out. Friday is my date day where I go out with my wife and we see a movie or walk the town or drive to Holland or whatever, ride bikes. No, we don't ride bikes. I, I don't <laughs> exercise. And so, um, and then, you know, that night after school, during school time, hang out with the family, family fun night. Saturday is a catch up. Do I, is there any loose ends? But also, you know, trying to take some, some, a little more time with the family. Sunday is just, you know, uh, a very long day of, you know, uh, waking up, getting to the, the, the building, um, meeting with people, speaking, um, worshiping, and then whatever else, like a lot of times we have our leadership meetings on those days because that's the only day that people can show up. So that's kind of like, um, a, uh, a big picture of how I try to structure my week. Yeah. I know I need structure, but I also like to veer away from structure sometimes too. So One of the things that I think we probably share as small church pastors, you get to church on Sunday and you, you probably unlock the building and turn on the lights and do all of that stuff. I don't know if you do, but... <laughs> I'm slowly getting away from that seven years in. Not really what you sign up for, but it's part of the deal. <laughs> when someone else is scrubbing the toilet, you've made it as a small-time <laughs> pastor. You know what I mean? Like, that's that should be all of our goal. <laughs> this day will live in infamy, the day I didn't have to clean the toilet. But there will always be a day where... It does come down to you and you're that person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to expect that right. too. Shane, I was really like thrilled to hear that you get time in your schedule to block out for the sermon. Uh, a lot of pastors don't get that because we are multitasking and we're doing it all, especially in small church ministry. But what what does the sermon mean to you? What, what uh, do you put into it and what do you try to get out of it? What What's going through your head as you're putting a sermon together? Yeah. Um, I like it when we are like going through a book or going through a gospel or whatever, because then I just kind of know, you know, it's like when we're not doing that, 
or not having a series or whatever, I'm like, all right, Holy Spirit, what are we going to talk about? Just crack open my Bible. The old point. Yeah. (laughs) Psalm 73, sweet. You know, um, I know that. That's a good choice. Yeah, that's a good one. So I, that's kind of like, I like to have, this is where we're going, you know, big picture. Right now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and we're at the very end getting to, you know, the sand and the foundation. So that's where we're at. But I think what I try to do is ask how what is this what is this scripture saying to me and let me preach to myself first mm-hmm. I always say that and um I I'm not going to try to be Jesus's henchman and say you all need I'm right. like where where am I in this I'm also sitting on the mountainside you know lapping up the words of Jesus as he's speaking these things to his his companions and his followers. So I guess I'm just trying to ask the question, what is the scripture saying to me? And then what, Holy Spirit, how do you want me to communicate this to the body of Christ? And that's not always easy. It's sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm raring to go. I'm chomping at the bit. Other times I'm like, I don't even want to do this. Yeah. Do you feel like your relationship with your congregation, you know, that whatever people are going through, how much of that is affecting your sermon prep? I think that it happens intentionally sometimes, but more often it happens naturally or organically in as the Spirit moves. Like there are times when I'm standing up there, and I mean, it's it's daunting to sometimes just say, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I mean, if you guys have preached, you know that. So yeah. it's like, it's a very weird place. But um, very a privilege and honor. So I, I think that sometimes I'm like have specific people or relationships or we as a church, I see that we're kind of like moving in a direction that we need to kind of like get back, you know, mm-hmm. um, onto the path, if you will. So I think that um, some sometimes that stuff does happen. Um, and it's more about, I think that it's like in God's timing, he sets it up to, oh, we're at this passage in this time and it's the perfect time. Mm. So what's, what are some of the things that you love most about pastoring? Like what would you not trade for a million shekels? I think having an intimate relationship with people. And I say that in, they're telling me things about their life or their dreams or their hopes or their prayers, their struggles. And that's where I think I kind of like, I don't know, it's more my forte is to be able to sit across from someone at a coffee shop and create a a confidential space Mm. of just tell me what's really going on below the surface. And sometimes people share and sometimes they're guarded, but kind of like offering that that space for someone. I think that's one of my joys, mm. you know, uh, and seeing people move um, or grow spiritually, um, seeing people mature in their faith, that's, that's kind of like, that's the good stuff. Yeah. What about the other side? Yeah. Is there things that... Board meetings? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean... I think if I'm walking with someone and I'm offering my time and my support and my counsel, and then we we collectively 
you know, agree on this would probably be a better way or mm-hmm. a better path or let's look at the scripture. And then it's like they yeah. just jump off the cliff. Yeah. It's like, man, you know, like we spent, you know, eight hours like Absolutely. talking about this and then you chose to do that. And then it's like, wow, I guess that's kind of like our Heavenly Father, you know, like how yeah. He deals with us and is patient with us and beckons us to come back. And I'm just there to be a consistent kind of, you know, spiritual advisor or pastor or friend to a person who would choose or not choose to be a part of our community of faith. You're not going to cut that person off. You're going to be patiently waiting for them to come back. Yeah. 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 And that's the, th- I mean, we always want that moment of everything comes together and they make this great decision and they become the person that we know they can be. And like, we can mark that down or put a picture on our wall of like, yes, like I have this pastoral victory, but that's probably much rarer than yeah, what right. you just described. Right. Like pouring into somebody and then, <sighs> and, but that's, yeah, you're right. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of a shepherd, you know? One of my new things that I've been saying is, you know, I've seen you operate in in your healthiest moments, and I've also seen you operate in your unhealthiest moments. And right now you're operating out of a place of unhealth. Hmm. And I believe that I, you know, I've seen it. So, you know, there's, I don't know, that's kind of like one of my my new tricks but <laughs> did you you went to grand rapids theological right correct yeah. you, you had to take like counseling classes and stuff like that not as many as i think we should have yeah you know like that's my big thing i was just talking with someone about that um a couple weeks ago like <laughs> yeah all of these like systematic the you know classes and biblical theology and all hermeneutics and everything great cool we need that but we need to have like a cognate or something of like, you know, because all we had was like, you know, counseling 101, yeah. you know, slash <laughs> Don't philosophy. sit with your arms crossed, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. How to actively listen. Yeah. Yeah. Mimic how they're sitting. So you're crossing <laughs> your legs. Cross your legs. You know? Like, I, I mean, that most of, I would say probably 80% of what I do is, is probably counseling. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and I was like, I should probably go back to school and try to learn how to do this better. Yeah, you know? it's having spiritual conversations with people mm-hmm. on that on that level of. Well, and maybe that's like a, a good example of how like there's this popular ideal of pastoral ministry, which is preaching and teaching and spiritual leading. And the, the seminary system is reflecting that ideal. But the reality for most pastors is that's a small portion of what we do. That kind of underlies everything, but so much more of it is not <laughs> within that that it's realm. It's that shepherding. It's nurturing. Yeah. It's caring for people. We're a podcast, so people couldn't see. Like in your hand, you had a stick, Shane, and you were like knocking them back onto the path. And not a like, real oh. stick. It was an air stick. It was an air yeah. stick. Air stick. Like, Come on, guys, over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking about this, like. If, if, if I get, if I get eight hours to like dig in and study and all of that, use my tools and my software and my Bible (laughs) and my commentary and, you know, whatever. And then I'm preaching for an hour tops. That's nine hours out of a, even a 45 hour work week. 
I mean, that's what do the math. That's what one fifth of yeah. what I'm doing, what I'm doing anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. And I love preaching and I love the prep to it. And so it's hard to sometimes give that up and say, this isn't as important as I'm making it yeah. <laughs> you know, want it yeah. to be. But it is, too. I mean, we talked about that earlier in the episode, how there is this thing about the sermon that for some people, this is the only time they're going to open their Bible all week. Hopefully not. Oh, but yeah. the reality is that's true. And so and that puts such a burden. Yeah. I think you feel that, Shane, when you were talking about your your preaching, like there's this burden, the gravity of the situation. I've got to speak. God's word to people so that they hear it. And it's not that that puts pressure on you. There's nothing you can do to get out from under that pressure as a pastor. It's more like this is an awesome responsibility that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone talk about that. Like you're, you're all week, you're kind of carrying this burden Mm. Uh, and it's a good burden, but it is nevertheless a burden. And then you're dropping it at the foot of the cross and you're and you're opening it up in front of the congregation and you're pulling this stuff out you know and and then giving it regurgitating it or communicating it to the body of Christ and it's it's a it's a wonderful burden you know that, yeah yeah you been reading anything one of the things that I one of the books that I just went through again and I think you can go through it over and over and over again. And I handed it to one of the guys, young guys in our church. But it's Practicing the Presence of, of God by Brother Lawrence. And it's just, it's really kind of like look, realizing that the fact that, that God is with us all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're not just compartmentalizing him. But we're off. We're inviting him into everything, mm. whether it's a conversation or um, uh, uh, you know going to bed or talking with our wife or hanging out with our kids. It's kind of like just consciously inviting him into um, our 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 pre- the presence. Mm. The presence. It's a spiritual discipline. I've read that book, and it takes it takes practice. Practicing the presence means you have to practice it and get better at it. Yeah, yeah. It's an exercise. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's why I think I can probably go back and read it once a year, but mm-hmm. I haven't ever done that. So, <laughs> but you could. <laughs> but I could. But you would recommend it. I would recommend it, and it's not that long. It's you could read it in probably like one day, not even like. Well, thanks so much for being here, Shane. Yeah. We really appreciate your ministry uh, and uh, all that you have to share. Um, thanks for being with us today. Yeah. Thanks, Shane. We appreciate being here. Yeah. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation. Amen.